this text is incredible. I, I want you to try to think of a time in your life where you were really thirsty. You were incredibly dehydrated. Maybe you had gone for a long run. I, I wouldn't know what that feels like. Don't really like running, but I could imagine. And you get done with this run or you're in a place where you're really thirsty and you go to your fridge to get something to quench your thirst. Now question, lemonade, does it quench your thirst or make you more thirsty? Shockingly, it actually makes you more thirsty. Initially, you think it actually quenches your thirst. It's cool, it feels refreshing. But because of the elements, the acidicness in lemonade and the sugar, it's just a temporary Satisfaction. It actually makes you more thirsty in the long run. And we're going to encounter a woman in the text today who continues to try to quench her thirst with things that don't actually quench. So I want you to follow along with me. John chapter 4. Sometimes we ask you just to sit and let us read over you. This morning, I want to ask you to follow along. So you can follow on the screens or in the Bible in the pew in front of you. John chapter 4, and we're starting in verse 1. When Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, though Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went again to Galilee. He had to travel through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the property that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well. It was about noon. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Give me a drink, Jesus said to her, because his disciples had gone into town to buy food. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman, she asked him, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. Sir, said the woman, you don't even have a bucket and the well is deep. So where do you get this living water? You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. Jesus said, everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. Sir, the woman said to him, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and come here to draw water. Go, call your husband, he told her, and come back here. I don't have a husband, she answered. You have correctly said I don't have a husband, Jesus said. For you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have, what you have said is true. Sir, the woman replied, I see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus told her, believe me, woman, An hour is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, because salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Jesus told her, I, the one speaking to you, am he. Just then his disciples arrived, and they were amazed that he was talking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you want? Or, why are you talking with her? 
Then the woman left her water jar, went into town, and told the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They left the town and made their way to him. In the meantime, the disciples kept urging him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said, I have food to eat that you don't know about. The disciples said to one another, Could someone have brought him something to eat? My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work, Jesus told them. Don't you say there are still four more months and then comes the harvest? Listen to what I'm telling you. Open your eyes and look at the fields because they are ready for harvest. The reaper is already receiving pay and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper can rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap what you didn't labor for. Others have labored and you have benefited from their labor. Now many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of what the woman said when she testified, he told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of what he said. And they told the woman, we no longer believe because of what you said, since we have heard for ourselves and know that this really is the Savior of the world. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, brother. Keep your Bibles open to John chapter 4 as we look at that and uh, sit under its teaching this morning. Um, one, of the, one of the, I guess it makes sense, we can't go through all of John simultaneously, um, but this story fits really, really well with something that happened just a few chapters ago, or actually just the previous chapter, but it was two sermons ago. Um, And I think it's important for us to understand that what we are seeing um, that is being revealed to us from John's gospel is the truth about who Jesus Christ is as John is trying to relay that information, relate that information to his audience. And there's this ongoing struggle that I think we all face, that we all are, are going through, which is, who is Jesus and whenever Jesus then reveals himself or makes himself known, the, the response should be, that's more than I thought. That's more than I expected. Um, sometimes different, but always more. And maybe that's why when Jesus communicates about himself or about the things of God or about the kingdom of God, that he has to try to find a, a, a comparison or a way to do it because it is so much more, it is so much greater that it's just hard for us to get our heads around. And this is how Jesus speaks. We, we call them parables. Now, you don't find parables in John's gospel. You find that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, particularly Matthew and Luke. Jesus spends a lot of time trying to, uh, to relay, to relate biblical truth to people who don't have divine perspective but desire it. They don't know exactly who God is, but they want to know more about him, and that hopefully is you this morning. I don't know exactly who God is, and so we ask these questions. I wonder what God is like. I wonder what the kingdom of God is like. And, and so Jesus kind of enters into that conversation and says, let me, let me share this with you. And maybe that's why we shouldn't be surprised that when Jesus does that, you walk away amazed, overwhelmed, maybe even troubled. Because what Jesus is describing is truly too great for us to get our head around. It it is too much 
um, for us to just kind of put into our back pocket and then to go on with life. You actually have this text recorded in Matthew chapter 13, verse 34, that Jesus told the crowds all these things, and it really that entire chapter is about the kingdom of God. It's the parable of the sower or the parable of the, um, the, the pearl of great price or the parable of the weeds and the tares, lots of different parables. Jesus told the crowd all of these things in parables, and he did not tell them anything without a parable. Now, that doesn't mean Jesus never spoke to anyone without a parable. I think he's describing what Matthew is describing is kind of a good chunk of his ministry, and particularly here, what Jesus is revealing about the kingdom of God. And it's too much, um, too big to just try to give them in, in normal terms. And, and, and it's not just that it's too big. It's sometimes it's that, that we're either too small or that um, our attention can easily be distracted, which is, if we're going to be honest, right, that's us. John doesn't use parables like this. But John does, in the mouth of Jesus Christ, he does, like, speak with these really profound, what we might want to call, like, um, a, a parable that's wrapped up in a metaphor. We see this a number of times that what Jesus does as he is relating to Nicodemus and to now the Samaritan woman is he is speaking some very profound truth about who he is and about what God can do. And, and just like when an entire parable is given and people are left scratching their heads going, are you trying to make this more complicated or less See, that's why when, when I hear preachers talk about parables, they usually describe Jesus tells parables because he knows how much we love a good story. And so he tells parables because what he really is doing is you got these deep, deep, deep issues about God. And what Jesus does, he tells this cute little parable. It's like putting the cookies on the low shelf that everyone can understand. Well, the problem is, is that when you look at what Jesus says and the response afterward, it's that it's usually not oh, now I get it. If anything, it's, well, I thought I understood, but then you started talking, Jesus, and now I don't get it. That's Matthew 13. I thought I understood the kingdom of God. I thought I understood what God was about. I thought I knew what God would actually do. And then you tell a story. Think about it. Aren't the parables designed in part, not all of them, but most of them, with like a shock? A prodigal leaves. A man who completely disrespects his father and his family. And when he finally comes to his senses, he goes home and you're going, okay, I know how this ends. And the dad lets him have it. No, he throws him a party. Okay, now I don't get God. Now I don't understand. So there's this person who's, who's hurt and wounded and a Levite walks by and doesn't help at all. And a, a priest walks by and does not help at all. And then a, a Samaritan. Okay, okay, I know how this ends. Does the Samaritan kick him? No, the Samaritan helps him. Be like him. Okay, now, now I don't understand neighbor. Because why? Because what, what Jesus does when he reveals himself, and, and this is what we're going to see, both with Nicodemus and with the Samaritan woman, Today we're in this with the Samaritan woman. Is being, being full of grace and truth, Jesus speaks um, in a, with, with, with parable so clearly that only some can understand. 
He speaks so clearly through the use of a parable that only those who are willing to stick around, only those who are willing to humble themselves, only those who are able to to take their previous understanding about themselves or God and to to, to put like a pause on it and say, no, I need to deal with this new information. Um, What you cannot do with the words of Jesus, particularly the parables or some of these metaphors that John kind of makes very much like the the centerpiece of Jesus' conversation with people, is you can't just go on your merry little way convinced what you're already convinced about or to know what you already know. Now, he so confronts those. And that's what we saw just a few weeks ago when Justin was preaching about Nicodemus. Nicodemus, and notice the, notice the amazing difference between chapter 3, Nicodemus, and chapter 4, the woman at the well. Nicodemus, a religious leader from the, from the, from the group of the, of the Pharisees who has spent all of his time studying the law. Here is Nicodemus, and he goes to Jesus. He seeks Jesus out, not like the woman at the well where Jesus seeks her out. Nicodemus goes at night, unlike Jesus, who actually goes in about around noontime. Nicodemus goes to Jesus and wants to ask him a question about life and about, good teacher, we all know that you clearly have come from God. And then what Jesus does is he completely unsettles him. Now you and I, this is a little bit of the problem of knowing the story, you and I know the story, so Nicodemus looks like, I don't understand why he doesn't get it. What does he mean he doesn't understand born again? Hasn't he ever been to a Billy Graham crusade? Some of you don't even know who Billy Graham is, but right? I mean, that's kind of how we look at it. I don't understand what the problem is. This is so clear because of who Jesus is and what he has already taught, it is clear to us. It wasn't clear back then. Just like today. Well, I don't understand why she doesn't get it. It's so clear what he's talking about. Well, you have better understanding because of who Jesus Christ is. But to Nicodemus who only knows one way to look at things, who is so convinced about who he is and so convinced about who God is that he is literally looking for additional information that does little more than just confirm what he already knows. And that is a terrible way to follow God. That is a terrible way. What's interesting is is that we see it is so obvious in Nicodemus And I would argue there's actually more going on here with the Samaritan woman than any of us know. So although there are a lot of similarities, there are some significant differences. There are some significant differences between this woman from Samaria and Jesus going to her ordinarily. And I don't know how many times I've preached this this text, but it's been a lot of times. And, And I focus so much on some very important and real parts of the text that I sometimes lose sight of what the most important part is. I sometimes so want to emphasize the fact that there is this sharp disagreement between Jews and Samaritans, that they really are, Samaritans would be considered to a Jew to be just a a cultural other, uh, as some have actually called a repugnant cultural other. The things that Jewish leaders wrote about Samaritans just cast them in the darkest light. And the fact that she is a Samaritan woman just kind of makes it that much more complicated. And yet Jesus goes out of his way, truly in the beginning of our text, it actually says in verse 4 that he had to travel through Samaria. No, he didn't. Now, it is true that that would have been the shortest way, but he didn't have to travel through Samaria. 
Now, I don't know how much of that he had to travel through was the compulsion of God because he needed to have this conversation with this woman, or if Jesus just really was in a hurry and needed to get to where he needed to go, but if he really was in a hurry, why does he say two extra days? It seems like Jesus has no problem bucking, no problem pushing back, no problem speaking against, no problem confronting the cultural norms that he lived in. Maybe that's one of the reasons why, and it's usually never talked about, do you know how shocking it would have been for the disciples of Jesus to just go to a Samaritan village to buy food? That is so not Jewish. Where would they have learned to do such a thing? You don't, especially food, food can not handled right, not prepared right, would make you unclean. And yet these Jewish disciples of a Jewish rabbi go into a Samaritan village to buy food. Where would they learn that from? From their rabbi. I'm assuming at some level told them to do so. Maybe that explains why they come back. They're not quick to ask questions because Jesus has already got them so um, on their heels, so um, cautious about what they're going to say. Jesus is confronting so many different things. And, and I believe in part he's doing it because, uh, again, Jesus is not interested in following cultural norms, and we should take note of that. That those people that society wants to marginalize, push to the, to the extremes, to the margins, have nothing to do with as followers of Jesus Christ who know the truth about them being made in God's image, who know the truth about them being uh, loved and cared for and forgiven by God, we understand that a lot of the divisions that exist within society um, not just shouldn't, can't exist as we model what it means to be the body of Christ. And we get these examples from this text, do we not? That Jesus has no problem speaking to this woman, and even she herself is shocked by this. He says, can you give me a drink? And, and, and she, she looks at him. How can you ask me for a drink? Don't you understand how this game is played? You being a Jew, you being a male, me being a Samaritan, me being a woman, I don't think you understand. Which is, by the way, almost what everybody says to Jesus when they have a conversation. Jesus, I don't think you understand. And isn't that, do you, do you get the irony in this? Nicodemus saying to Jesus, let me see if I can explain to you how this works, Jesus. And Jesus sits there. And this woman, by the way, seems to have some of those same issues. That's why I want to be very, very careful. Um, although Nicodemus definitely has a, probably a deeper and a fuller, um, from a Jewish perspective, understanding of who God is according to the law, um, this woman is deeply religious. This woman appears to have a deep love and appreciation for who God is. This woman is not coming somehow completely disconnected from anything religious or anything about God. Like, you do know who the Samaritans are, right? The Samaritans aren't just, um, aren't just others. If I were to even to speak to a, to a Jew back then and I would say, well, who are these Samaritans? What, what they would have to tell is a, is a much deeper story. These aren't completely that are disconnected absolutely from the story of God and his plan of salvation. No, um, they're, they're more like somewhere between brothers and sisters and cousins. The, the people from Samaria 
are not just a different kind of ethnic background. They're actually from the same. That when Jacob had the 12 sons, you have the 12 tribes, and from those 12 tribes, you have a a war and a separation, and then you have the 10 tribes from the north and the two tribes from the south. And those two tribes, they essentially revolve around one particular tribe, and that is the tribe of Judah. And you do know what people from Judah are called, don't you? Judas, Jews. And, and, and the people from the north, those were the northern tribes. Now, when there was hundreds of years before Jesus was born into this world, there was a war where, in fact, the northern tribes, these would be descendants of Jacob. These would be grandchildren of Abraham. When they are taken into captivity, the, 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 the Assyrians, as they're trying to deal with them, take some of them away, and then they bring in other groups of peoples to come and live with them, and they begin to, 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 to mix, to intermarry, which, by the way, happens when the South is destroyed as well. And that is where Samaritans come from. And so their, their background and their history is in part Jewish, well, at least from Israel, and, and so this, this problem and this struggle, I, I want you to understand that, that she has, as part of her spiritual heritage, a commitment to Abraham, a, a commitment to, to God, to Yahweh. Not only that, in terms of their devotion, the Samaritans weren't like just pagans. The, the Samaritans had a deep devotion, much like the Sadducees, to the first five books of the Old Testament. And in those first five books, they were able to discern the right way to worship. We see this in the text. So she is not coming as someone who is completely disconnected from God and wants nothing to do with him. No, I would argue that she believes she knows a lot about God. She's even looking for someone to come. In the text, John has her say, Messiah. And that's not usually the word that they would use. The word that they would use would be tahib. We know that Tahib would come. He's the one promised in the book of Deuteronomy. That's where she's leaning into. We do know that when Tahib comes, that when this prophet comes like Moses, he will explain to us about all of the disagreements and all of the differences that we have between us as Samaritans and you as Jews. So sure, she's not a Pharisee, and I'm sure that if they got into some kind of a competition, Nicodemus might know more things but she is deeply religious. And so I don't know who you are this morning. I don't know if you find yourself approaching Jesus on a regular basis, kind of like Nicodemus. Grew up with a deep sense of God and a deep awareness of who he is. You know you're not perfect. We all know you're not perfect. And so you're really wanting to engage Jesus. You're the one that sought out Jesus. You're the one that's trying to figure this out, and you at least pat yourself on the back for that. Or whether or not you're surprised by the presence of Jesus. Whether or not, although you have a religious background, it's been a long while since I've really felt comfortable at church. And a lot of mistakes I've made. And I feel like people are staring at me. I think people are looking at me. It's not that I don't love them. It's not that I don't have deep convictions. I'm just a, I'm a really broken person. Nicodemus goes to find Jesus. And Jesus goes to find her. 
And he sits down with her. And he realizes, because he always knows, that she did not know what she thought she knew. She did not know what she thought she knew. Isn't it amazing that even in our brokenness, we're aware that even in our brokenness, we get a sense that God is and God is, is watching us. And then I think sometimes we, we can use like religious things or religious ideas as a barricade or a barrier between us and God. But if we're being honest, I, I, know, I know of people, and I'm, I am a people, I am a person, so I know this. Have you ever let like your own baggage or your own sin be the barrier? Your own failure and your own brokenness to be that thing which somehow creates a distance. I mean, you might say, well, I just, I can't imagine how God can, or I don't believe that God would, even though every Sunday we talk about what God is willing to do. For some people, they've got a pretty strong religious pedigree that keeps them from dealing with Jesus. And others, it's the lack of one or a long list of consequences or decisions either that we have made or that others have made for us that create a wall that's just too high to climb and, and too big to get around. And in, and in both instances, we actually see Jesus persisting. This conversation is fascinating because they're, they're talking about everything. Hey, can you give me a drink? Man alive, what do you mean? Why are you asking me to have a drink? And then as the conversation continues, not only does she think that she knows about lots of different things, she even looks at him and she doesn't, she thinks he's just a regular person. One of the most interesting comments that she actually makes in her encounter with him is, you're not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Look at that in verse 12. You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Now, what's interesting is, is that that statement is not, are you greater than our father Jacob? I sure hope so. No, it's actually constructed expecting a no in response. This is actually not a statement of trust and belief. It's actually a statement of, of, of disbelief. She literally is saying to him, you aren't greater than our father Jacob. And he had to, uh, needed to dig this well. And, and since you're less than him, because after all, who is greater than our father Jacob? And I love this because she's saying this to Jesus. You're not greater than our father Jacob. She knows who Jacob is. She understands how this works. And wow, she has no idea. And that's why Jesus responds to her. And I love how he just keeps coming back. You think you understand what you thirst for. And yet, if you knew who I was, you think you understand who I am. I'm not greater than your father, Jacob. If you knew who I was, you think you know, but you have no idea. Yeah, her greatest obstacle, and I think it should be both a warning and an invitation to us. Let us be very, very careful, believing that we know all believing that we understand exactly how Jesus is going to come and to respond because he's not just trying to surprise us, but he has an agenda. 
And he has a purpose that is greater, wider, deeper than any of us can understand. And that is why I think verse 10 really does kind of help us understand how to deal with Jesus and what this woman needs to understand. Look at verse 10. Jesus says to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. She is sitting in front of Jesus. She is by a well. And yet because of of life and, and because of her culture and because of her belief system, she cannot understand or she cannot perceive what she actually has in front of her. And so what does Jesus do? Give up? Walk away? No, he persists. I've thought a lot about this question. Jesus actually says to her, if you knew, if you only knew, you would ask. What he's helping her to understand, a lot like what he's helping Nicodemus understand, is that if you can understand who I am, if you, if you can somehow persist and, and work through, and what, what do I need to work through? I, I believe that all of us have to work through what we believe or who we believe God is and what God is about. And instead of just coming with our own preconceived ideas, or instead of us just constantly coming with what other people have said about God, instead to sit down under him and to let God instruct us, to let God speak about who he is. And instead of always having a a counter or some kind of a disagreement, instead to sit there and say, I don't know everything there is to know about God. I don't understand exactly how God works. I made a comment one time a number of years ago, and then I I made the dumbest decision, one of the dumbest decisions I've ever made. I posted it on Facebook. It was a great statement. I'll stand by it. And I I just had so many people that would, they responded and they said, I just could not believe in a God like that. I just could not worship a God like that. I just could not. Where does that come from? Where does that come from? I don't know. It's a lot like Nicodemus. I just can't figure out how we're supposed to get back into our mother's womb. So Jesus, I just don't get it. It seems as John unfolds that Nicodemus stuck around, although in chapter 3, he seems like he's just confused. And here you have this woman, and this is the beauty of this. And and this woman doesn't understand it. What do you you mean water? What what are you talking about? It's interesting. If you you look at verse 10, if you knew the gift, that that word for gift is actually found five times in the New Testament. Once in the Gospels, which means it's here, and then four times in the book of Acts. Every time that word gift is referring to the Holy Spirit. If you knew the gift that I could give you, I mean, and again, this is where, this is where like, life can be distracting. Jesus is there. He's, he's walked. He's on this long journey. It'll take about three days. He has walked at least 10 to 12 miles, maybe 20 miles over a very short period of time. It is, it is noon. It is hot. 
and they're talking about water, and all of the, all of the images from the scene have somehow completely made her incapable of understanding what he's really talking about. And by the way, you and I would just say, well, yeah, no, I get it. I mean, how is she supposed to know? And you want to know the answer? She isn't. She isn't supposed to know. Jesus doesn't get mad at her. What's wrong with you? Why don't you get that I'm talking in a profoundly spiritual level? It's not what he does. But it literally is at that moment, and by the way, you've been at one, and maybe you're going through one, where the words of Jesus or the, the plan of God is so much that is, it is so great that it is really causing like a tension in you. And I don't understand how this is going to work out. I don't know what Jesus wants. I don't understand what this demand is going to be. And then you have one of two options. You can either do what a lot of people do, which is, I don't get it, I don't agree with it, I'm out. And that's what they do when Jesus speaks parables. Is they literally just, they give up. I don't understand it, this is just dumb, I'm leaving. And I really believe that Jesus not only uses parables to explain deep truth, but sometimes uses parabolic language like this within a, a, a much more um, kind of a normal dialogue to see how they're going to respond. If you knew the gift and you knew the one who was giving the gift, this is what you would ask for. And, and what she does, which is not what's going to happen in John chapter 6 when Jesus gives a profound message about um, the, the, the blood and his body, um, a lot of them just walk away because that's just crazy talk. What I love about this woman is she is leaning in and she's saying, can you just tell me more? Listen, you don't have to know everything about God. You don't have to know everything about Jesus. But when he speaks in ways about life and about himself, you have one of two choices. You can either become so frustrated and disappointed that you can walk away, or you can humble yourself like she does. See, I thought I knew. I thought I had this all figured out. Now I'm not so sure. Oh, so you have it all figured out now? No. I, I just know that I think he does. I just know that what I'm doing is not working. Her life is not working. And maybe that's one of the big reasons why what we actually see in this text is while she did not know exactly what she was seeking, she's just going to the well. God was still seeking her. And that's happening to every single one of us. Again, I don't know if your story lines more, up, lines more closely to Nicodemus than to the, to the woman, but the, the beauty of it is that God is seeking us. And when we find Jesus, I just want to remind you of a truth that's going to come up over and over and over again in, the, in this gospel, in the fourth gospel, and that's this. Jesus the Messiah is more than what she, the Samaritan woman, or the Samaritans who are going to come and begin to follow Jesus, or the Jews who have rejected him and will continue to reject him, not all of them, but most of them, or even his own disciples, Jesus is always more, which that means that those who decide that they are going to persist with him 
that they are going to stay with him and they are going to continue to ask questions and they're going to continue to take their own pride and to submit it so that they don't allow their already broken understanding or already broken experiences somehow stand in the way of what God is trying to do. There's an important line from John chapter 1 that I want to remind you of that really is kind of, I think, at the very center of this entire conversation, and and it's from John chapter 1 verse 14. This is how Jesus is described. Recommend you underline it and go back to it over and over and over again. The word, that's Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we observe his glory The glory as the one and the only Son from the Father and this one from the Father who will come and will speak to Nicodemus and to John the Baptist and to his own disciples um, and and from uh, to to an entire crowd. He is going to speak because he is full of grace and truth. He is full of grace and truth. Interestingly enough, when, when we talk about grace and truth, and this is where I think we get into trouble, when we talk about grace and truth, we like to almost consider them to be like opposites, right? Like we have one of two options. We can either be kind, caring, compassionate people and, and be gracious and be kind. It always bothered me when students would walk into my office and they would, you know, they would hand in either a paper or they would, you know, talk about their test and they would say, be gracious, and so they would ask me, would you please be gracious? Please be gracious. I know what they're asking. They're meaning, will I be nice? And, you know, they got the wrong answer. They really don't know what they're doing. They didn't study, and they, they want credit for that. That's what grace is. And so we have this picture of grace, which is just kind and sweet and cuddly. And then over here, we've got truth, which, by the way, we all need it. We all recognize the value for it, but it, it, it's it's it's... It's rough around the edges, and, and, and you just need to be careful with it. I hear, I've heard a lot of people, even recently, speak about this idea that what we really need to do is we need to learn to balance grace and truth. And, and when I hear someone say that, I think to myself, how do you balance those two things? Like, is that really what Jesus is doing? See, what I love about Jesus, and we're looking at John chapter 4, is that what he does is he doesn't balance grace and truth. He is the perfect integration of grace and truth. Jesus looks at this woman and and realizes, so hear me, I I love the fact that he has gone to her and I can learn so much about just Jesus' desire and ability to just go where no one will go. And then when he goes there, he speaks. He's not rough. He's honest. Jesus didn't say, well, I'm not, sorry, I'm not going to be gracious today. Today's a truth day. No, no, no. When Jesus speaks to her, he knows perfectly that the only way she will find grace is through the truth about herself. You you, you speak well. And the reality is, is that um, the man you're living with now, that's not your husband. You've had five husbands, which by the way, either means she's made some terrible choices, meaning that has caused her to be then rejected because of adultery, or else she's the victim of five men who have made terrible choices and decided to walk away from a commitment that they made. Either way, she's got cultural baggage. 
And Jesus doesn't go, well, I don't want to talk about this. Today's a grace day. Now, he, here's an understatement. Jesus knows that her path to peace is not more grace, less truth, but grace and truth. And that's the story of this gospel. What Nicodemus needed was grace and truth. The truth about himself and the truth about God. If you knew who it was that was speaking to you, you would know what to ask for. Is that grace or truth? Yes. If we know who Jesus is, if we just knew who he was, we would know what to ask for. And that is why this ultimate response that we actually see, and not just from her, but then she goes and tells the fact that she is able to humbly, she is such a beautiful picture of someone who is able to take her own baggage and her own brokenness that now everybody knows. And now that she knows that God knows, which she knew that God knew, but then when God started talking about it, and yet he persisted with her, now all of a sudden she finds at this perfect intersection of grace and truth, she finds peace. And her only response is to tell others about it. You know, it's not a common phrase. Look at verse 42. It's not a common phrase, Savior of the world, but because of what she was willing to say and hear and then do, a number of other people come to faith. And they say, we no longer believe because of what you said. They're, by the way, they're not discrediting her. They're actually validating what she said and more. We no longer believe just because of what you've said since we have now heard for ourselves and we know that this really is not just Tahib, their version of the Messiah, or Messiah, but the Savior of the world. Because when God comes, and Jesus points this out, it's so much more than just are we going to worship in Jerusalem or on Mount Gerizim? It's so much more. Who's right? The ten tribes from the north or the two tribes from the south? No, God's plans and God's purposes are more far-reaching and are more demanding than any of us know. They are the perfect blending together of, faith, of, of, of grace and truth. And that is why it is so critical this morning that as we gather this morning that we're willing to understand who Jesus is and receive him for who he is and not just who we want him to be. We receive Jesus for who he is, not just who we want him to be. And that's what this means. In this text, a number of different times, Jesus talks about the hour that is coming and that always in John's gospel refers to his death. The hour that is coming, which refers to his death. And so Jesus is always willing to speak about things, not because he's trying to speak in mysterious or cloaked language, but because the unfolding of the plans of God are always far greater than we could ever understand. And we see that here at this meal. Because if we knew who Jesus really was, we would know what to ask. And so before we ever actually knew, he already had a plan for us, a plan of redemption and a plan of peace. And that is what we celebrate now. That the Savior of the world, that this woman was able to see and to discover, came not just for Samaritans and not just for Jews, but for all of us. And so we remember and we celebrate that now taking his body, which was broken for us, and eating. Taking the cup, 
His blood poured for us. Let us drink. Isn't it good to know that Jesus is more than we expect? You can't out-expect him. And that is why we now stand and we worship him. Not because we know exactly what it's like, but we know who he is. Enough to stand and give our praise and devotion to him. Let us stand and do that now.